Thank you for tuning in to a sermon from Redemption Hill Church. I'm so glad that you've joined us. It's our prayer that this will lift your heart and encourage you, set your eyes more fully on Jesus as we open God's word together. You can join us anytime in person or online in our live stream. You can find that at redemptionhilldc.org. If you're not in D.C., we encourage you to get involved in a local church where you live for the sake of encouragement and accountability in a local body, but we're also glad to have you join us and, and walk through this study with us. If you'd like to support the ministries of Redemption Hill, you can do so at our website, again, redemptionhilldc.org. Father, as we open your word, we, we come to it hungry for what you have for us, thirsty, and, and hoping that there can be water that will, will parch our soul, will, will <laughs> quench our parched souls. Lord, we pray that you would, you would speak to us clearly. We pray that, that as we read this word, as we sing together, as we share in the Lord's table today, that it would, it would be glorifying to you and set our hearts right. And so we lift this time to you in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, we are in a short series in the book of Jonah. So if you have a Bible, you can open it up with me to Jonah. We're going to be in chapter 2 today. If you don't own a Bible, there's some on the book table in the back. You can grab one. It is our gift to you. Um, as we've been walking through Jonah, last week we saw that Jonah, probably the most famous part of the book is the first chapter um, where Jonah ran from God. He was called by God, get up, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for its wickedness has come up before me. And so Jonah rose, and if you remember, he rose, and instead of going to Nineveh, he went the opposite direction to flee to Tarshish. We saw Jonah descend from that point, that he went down to Tarshish, and he went down onto a ship, and he went down into it and fell asleep, and then was woken up, as the captain said, what are you doing, what are you doing sleeping? Get up, call out to your God, perhaps he'll give thought to us that we may not perish. As we left it last week, Jonah asked the men to throw him overboard, and so he did, and the wind and the waves ceased. And so that's what brings us to today, and we're going to see Jonah's prayer and what happens next in the story. As we do, we're going to talk about prayer. Our prayer and our prayer life reveals a lot about us. A.W. Tozer said, what comes to mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Now, C.S. Lewis said, I read in a periodical the other day, now, A.W. Tozer wrote in the 1970s and C.S. Lewis in the 1940s, so he wasn't talking about Tozer. He said, I read in a periodical the other day that the, fun the fundamental thing is how we think about God. By God himself, it's not. How God thinks of, of us is not only more important, but infinitely more important. Indeed, how we think of him is of no, more, no importance except insofar as it's related to how he thinks of us. And so while I think C.S. Lewis is right, this is something that, that we, what he's saying is something that we have little influence over, how God thinks of us as he looks at us, those who bear his image and likeness. And I think Tozer has something on the practicality of life. So what comes to mind for you as you think about God? What we think about God will shape how we see ourselves, how we see others, how we, how we make sense of life in the world around us and how we ought to live. And misunderstanding God will lead us to misunderstand our life's circumstances. Our prayer reveals what we believe. 
And so this is, as we continue in Jonah, we're, we're going to have verse, chapter 1, verse 17, through chapter 2, and this is what we read. So Jonah was thrown into the sea, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me, and all your waves and billows passed over me. And then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I, yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will repay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah upon dry land. So Jonah, as he ran away, gets swallowed by the fish, and in his prayer quotes 15 different psalms. So he's pulling on scripture from, from the Psalter and, and from all over it. And, and, and we see here what Jonah's perspective is on these events, on what's happening around him. We see his perspective on who God is, his perspective on others. And that's, I hope, going to be revealing for our own hearts today as well. And so we start with the fish. So far, we've seen, it's been incredible to see the obedience of nature to God and of the, the pagan sailors to God. Remember last week, we saw the contrast between Jonah and these sailors. And so Jonah, three commands came to Jonah, get up, go to Nineveh, and call out. And Jonah followed the first one, he got up, and he ran away. In the meantime, the wind and the waves obey God. He is able to stir them up, and he's able to silence them. He's, the, the sailors worship God. When they learn who he is, they fall down and fear the Lord, and they, they, they offer sacrifices and make vows, and now we see a fish that is obedient to God. And Tony Evans said here, when you're running from a particular aspect of your calling, God will send circumstances, and they will find you. The wind obeyed, the sea obeyed, the fish obeyed, but there was still a problem with the preacher. And so Jonah saw the fish as his salvation, but there's a problem with that, too. The language swallowed is used almost exclusively, especially in the Old Testament, in judgment. And so it's used in, in Moses' song after they crossed the sea, about, about the sea swallowing Pharaoh's armies. It's also used in Numbers 16. There was a rebellion against Moses. The sons of Korah came up, and Moses said to them, like, is, is it not enough for you what God has given you? And, and the ground swallowed. So we read there that... In number 16, and as soon as he had finished speaking these words, the ground under them split apart and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all their people who belonged to Korah and all their goods. And, they all that, and, and so, so they and all that belonged with them went down alive into Sheol and the earth closed over them and they perished from the midst of the assembly. 
That is a heck of a sinkhole that just developed under the sons of Korah. And so this word swallowed that Jonah is, is used in judgment, and the word that's used for vomiting as the fish vomits Jonah up is, is used also in judgment. It's, it's called up in the same language in Revelation chapter 3 when, when Jesus said to the church in Laodicea, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you or vomit you out of my mouth. So why would those, that language be used in Jonah chapter 2? Well, let's look more carefully at his prayer. He says first, I called out to the Lord in my distress. This is from the belly of the fish. And he answered me, out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. And so he begins, this is the prologue, and then he gets into his account of the events. For you cast me into the deep. Into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Is that what we read in chapter 1? Not at all. Jonah wanted to run from God's sight. Jonah, we saw last week that Jonah didn't believe that God is everywhere, that he knows everything, that he's all-powerful. He thought he could run away from God. And so instead, he's blaming God for his circumstances. He's saying, you've done this to me. You're the one that threw me into the deep. He doesn't admit that he was the one that said, throw me overboard, but he blames God for it. And then he gives his response, yet, yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. He gets back into his story. The water is closed in over me, and you see that he continues his descent he goes into the deep. The waves and the billows pass over him. Now the waters closed into him to take his life. The deep surrounded him, down to the weeds wrapping around his head. At the roots of the mountains, he went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought my life, up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. But what is the reason that God brought his life from the pit? In verse 7, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. So Jonah here is saying, God, you threw me into the sea. You're the one to blame for this. You, it's your waves and billows that were over me. It's you, this, it, you were the one that cast me into this, and, and I, went, I sank all the way down to the roots of the mountains, but when I was there, I remembered you, and my prayer came to you at your temple. See, Jonah has a perspective here that actually shows a better reflection of the, of the pagan gods around Israel than, the, than what he claims to serve and worship as the one who fears the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. In, ancient, in the ancient Near East, every nation had a god that they worshipped, and in battles, you knew which god was more powerful by which army was victorious, but they were against each other, they, and so they were regional deities. And Jonah's reflecting that kind of understanding here, that his prayer had to reach God, it was his action, and then God had to respond to him. Now, you might think I'm being a little hard on Jonah, but again, as we read the second half of this book that isn't often read, we see this stuff continue to come through as he continues to be angry and he continues to say to God, he would rather die than see the Ninevites repent. Jonah's prayer reveals what he believes about God's character, about himself, and about others. 
In the same way, our prayers reveal what we believe. And so first, they reveal what we believe about God's character. Now again, Jonah, we see a difference here, a contrast between Jonah and the sailors. The sailors responded to the storm in fear, crying out to their gods. When they realized, when Jonah told them the name of the god that, that he was running from, they acknowledged his sovereignty and worshipped him and cried out to him, and they did it all on the spot. It was an immediate response. We have a contrast with Jonah and the fish. The fish obeys God, but, and it's so immediate and assumed that the details don't even make the story. We don't know what kind of a fish. We don't know if it was a whale or a fish. I don't know that it's that relevant to the story, what it was, and it's, it's clearly not because we don't have the details, but Jonah, it just says the Lord appointed a fish to do this, to swallow Jonah, and he was in the belly of the fish. Like, it's so assumed that nature is going to hear the voice of its creator and obey that we don't even get the part of the, swish, the fish actually swallowing Jonah. And again, we saw in chapter one that God's character, that he is a God who speaks whose presence is inescapable, whose knowledge is infinite, who is sovereign and who is concerned with all people. But I don't think that's how Jonah sees God. He sees God as someone that has to do his bidding. And it's true, he quotes the Psalms like crazy. He has 15 different Psalms quoted in eight verses. And, and who wouldn't wanna pray that way? We, we know this, that there's some times when some people pray and there's all kinds of scripture. So there's, there's a beauty to jo- Jonah's prayer. There's a poetry to it for sure. But the problem is in all of those quotations of the Psalms, Jonah stops short again and again and again before the Psalm turns to repentance. He never gets to repentance. He never proclaims God's character. He never gets to a point of worshiping God. Instead, he blames God for his suffering. He holds himself up in contrast to God's failing. And then, did you see that just for good measure, how he closed the prayer? He closes it by taking a shot at the people that God sent him to. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, but I, with a voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay because salvation belongs to the Lord. He has a fundamental misunderstanding of who God is. You see, Jonah was falling into the idolatry of his own people. It, it, refl- it shows here, and we see throughout this book, that Jonah really be- believes that only people like him and the people that he likes should receive God's love and mercy. Idolatry is a theme that is traced all the way through Scripture from beginning to end. It's a major thread in the narrative of the gospel. And so we see in Psalm 115 the effect of idolatry when it says, "...their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands." They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see, they have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them will be like them, and so do all who trust in them. So throughout scripture, we see this language come up. Even as Jesus taught parables and he was asked, why do you, why do you speak in parables? He, sa- he quoted this section so that having ears, they may not hear and that they would not understand. It comes up in Isaiah chapter six as well, that Isaiah has a vision 
of God, in, he's in the temple, and he has a vision of God's presence in the throne, and, and the train of God's robe filled the temple, and the, the threshold shook, and it was filled with smoke, and he saw angelic beings singing out and crying out to God, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And in the presence of God's glory and majesty, Isaiah fell down and said, woe to me, I'm ruined. He started confessing his sin. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I'm a, I live among a people of unclean lips. And so an angel brought a coal from the altar and touched his mouth to cleanse him from sin. And God, he heard God's voice say, who will go for us? Who will I send? And he said, here I am, send me. And he said, go and say to this people. And this is Isaiah's commission. Like this is a beautiful passage that I think often as, when we read it or if you hear it read, we kind of stop there. We say, we're confronted with God's glory. We'll confess our sin. And once we have been cleansed by God, we will hear his voice and go and wherever he calls us to go. And that's true, but we don't get to Isaiah's commission. God said to him, go and say to these people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. See, he's saying to Isaiah, these people are caught in idolatry. And you're going to bring a message to them, but it's only going to make it worse as they reject God's word. I think it's Spurgeon who said that the same sun that melts wax hardens clay. Went on to say, make the heart of this people dull, their eyes heavy, blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, or hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. And Isaiah cried out, how long, Lord? He's saying, how long do I have to preach that that's the result? And God said, until the cities lie in waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is desolate, and the Lord removes people far away, and forsaken places are many in the midst of the land, and though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like terebinth or oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. See, God is saying, Isaiah's commission as a prophet, when he, when he sees God's presence and responds, I will do anything for you, Lord, is go and preach your whole life, but the preaching is going to result in a lack of repentance, a lack of response to these people as they sink further into idolatry, and the result was going to be that the people would be scattered and that the nation would be destroyed. Do you know who came in that this was looking ahead to, that God would use at the, as the axe laid at the foot of the tree of Israel? It was Assyria. And the capital of Assyria is Nineveh. Jonah is a post-exilic prophet. It was written after Assyria had come in and destroyed Israel and, and exiled the people away. And this, so it makes some sense when God comes to, to Jonah and says, Jonah, get up and go to Nineveh and call out that Jonah gets up and wants nothing to do with Nineveh. He wanted to get as far away as he could from what God was calling him to, and he had reason to, and he did not want those people to receive God's love and mercy. And we struggle with the same kind of issues. And we don't want to admit it. We might be friendlier than that. We, won't, we don't want to say, like, hey, there are people on earth that I don't think should be saved, that God shouldn't love. But we still get caught up in our own issues, our own idolatries that blind our eyes and, and dull our ears. And Tim Keller said, I had to quote Tim Keller today. Um, Tim Keller has had uh, more of an impact on missiology, my missiology on my heart for this city. Um, I don't think we would have come to DC and started Redemption Hill Church if it wasn't for his influence 
on me, and there's much that we do as a church that has been deeply, deeply influenced by his life and ministry. And so I turned to see what Tim Keller had on Jonah. He, if, if you haven't heard, he passed away on Friday after a long battle with pancreatic cancer. But he's now with Jesus, and faith has become sight. Now, Tim Keller said here, the reason Jonah's suicidal, in this, he's commenting on chapter four, he says the reason he's suicidal is that he, he, is, is he has experienced psychological disintegration because his entire self-image was based on his feeling of moral superiority to other cultures and to other religions. Jonah had turned his religion into an idol. Now, it's hard when you, when you think about this and go, okay, at, at a heart level, all of us are like Jonah in some ways. Now, Jonah is a racist who turned national interests of his country into an idol, and you might not be doing that. But every one of us gets our self-righteousness for something. We, we know that Jonah's gross disobedience is idolatrous. We know that it's idolatrous for him to run away from God, to have bad character and not, and not understand the character of God. We know that it's bad that Jonah in chapter 4 sits up on a hillside asking God and waiting for God to destroy people. Like Those things are easy to be able to say and cite and say, that is bad and that shows wrong belief. But what about the, quote, the, the reality that he quotes 15 psalms? Jonah was a prophet in Israel. What about his religion? The same Hebrew Bible that we read now. What about his obedience? You see, we know how to guard it against some idolatry. You know that like, if you have an idol of money, the best way to deal with idolatry of money is to give it away. you'll have less idolatry of it. We know that to deal with an idol of career, that we have to find purpose and worth in identity that isn't only tied to our career. But how do we guard against religion as an idol? We need to be able to repent not only of our disobedience, but also we need to be able to repent of our obedience when we do things right in order to gain righteousness and gain God's favor. We can't be like Jonah who said, I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land and and quote all kinds of scripture and and pray flowery prayers and and say the right things and do the right things and check the right boxes and and come to church and serve at church and be involved in community group and do, do everything right, but in the meantime, miss God's heart as Jonah does here condemning people who bear God's image and likeness, and, and even if that condemnation is, is a simple refusal to go. Now Jonah didn't want the Ninevites saved. He didn't want to bring God's message to them. In chapter 4, he shakes his fist at God, saying, saying, Lord, I knew this. This is what I said when I was still in my own country. This is why I fled to Tarshish. I knew you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Like he turns God's self-proclamation against him. But he doesn't want to go. And we saw last week that Jesus boiled down the law and the prophets to two commands. To love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. So we have the great commandment, and then Jesus is given a great commission that every follower of Christ is called, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So there's a question for our hearts. You might not want to verbalize that there are people that you think don't deserve God's mercy, but are there people who you refuse to go to when we have an all people and all nations calling? Our prayer reveals our beliefs about God's character, and it reveals our beliefs about ourselves. This is what we see in Jonah's belief about himself. So again, with the sailors, you see the sailors, as soon as the sea and the wind stopped and ceased and quieted down, they were, even, I'm sorry, even in the midst of of the storm and the chaos, they were pleading with God for mercy. Jonah believed he deserved to be saved. The sailors, when, they, when everything had stopped, they stopped everything and they worshipped God, they feared God, they, they made a sacrifice, they, and they vowed vows. Jonah says, Lord, he says, my prayer reached you in your temple, you had to come and save me. And then, at the, then he goes on to say, that, but when I get back, I will make sacrifices, I will vow vows, I, I will, I'll pay, pay my due on this. It's not an immediate reaction. And so what do you reflect? Does God owe it to you to bail you out, or do you cry to him knowing you deserve nothing? Like, there's a reality check for Jonah here. There's a clear delusion in his understanding of events, and and we do the same thing too. That when we have consequences for our own actions and consequences for our own sins, we can still blame God for it. Like, if you get one of those pieces of mail from... DC's DMV that makes it clear that you were speeding in a 25 zone that should have been 45. Like they had one, had an on East Capitol around the stadium for a while where it's like five lanes and there is a speed camera right there but it's 25 miles an hour and the other direction is 40. That's ridiculous, like that is ridiculous. It is a money-making grab. (laughs) And I also respect governing authorities. But as those pieces of mail came to my house, and yes, pieces of mail came to my house, like, I can say whatever I want and say, like, God, how dare you put me in this situation where I lost $100 every time? Or I could say, man, I really messed this up. I've got to pay 100 bucks, even if I think it's unjust. <laughs> like, we, we, we do this in consequences in our own lives. This is what Job's friends did to him. Job, his, if, if the book of Job is a gift to us because it shows us that we have no idea why suffering happens. Now, we can look back often and see how God uses suffering and how things intended for evil are used for good. Yeah, but in the middle of it, we don't have any real idea. Yes, if it's a consequence for sin, then you should make that connection. But in Job, God allowed Satan to take everything from him and Job's friends, most of the book, that's the hard part to read, I think it's, it's, it's easy to get to Job and be like, okay, the first couple chapters are narrative, and it's like, holy cow, how do I even sort out all these friends coming in? But we get to the end, and God confronts Jonah and that, er, Job, and that's, sorry, those names are very close. <laughs> he confronts Job, and so they have that, and so those are the sections that we are drawn to, but in the middle, the majority of the book is Job's friends assigning him the reasons for his suffering. 
Some of them have kind of a prosperity gospel approach of, like, you know, you're not doing enough right, otherwise God will be blessing you. Some have a more legalistic approach saying, Job, you're, you've done something wrong, you have a secret sin, why don't you just confess it? Like, they, they all have an angle they're coming at, but none of them are right. And, and we can tend to do this to ourselves. We can become Job's friends in our own inner dialogue. Where when stuff happens in our lives, we look around and we say, like, what am I doing wrong that God would do this to me? What is the secret sin? Like, God, surface it up so I can get out of this, as if that's going to clear everything up in our lives. Or we, we, on the other side, might say to God, like, God, I've done everything you've asked of me. Why are you letting this happen? And so we, we still have this invade within ourselves, and it shows up in our prayer lives. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't pray those things when we think them and feel them. I think we ought to, because God can take it. That's one of the gifts of Job, too, is that at the end, Job is open. and he, When he finally gets honest with God, that's when God shows up. And so, but we need to be careful to allow our perspective to be shaped by God's word and then come through in the ways that we pray. There's a misunderstanding of God's character at the core of all of it for Jonah. He can't see the reality of his life's events. He blames God for his suffering, and then he takes credit for God's salvation. He doesn't understand that the swallowing of the fish is judgment against him. And the scary part, Jonah served under a very successful king. We saw in 2 Kings 14. He was used to comfort. He was used to claiming God's favor. He was used to being in a place that he enjoyed that was comfortable and posh in the king's palace and in his own place. But that king, even though he expanded the borders of the country, is described by God as wicked. God's judgment on us is most often isn't in the suffering we experience now. What we see in Isaiah chapter 6 about these people who were God's people who Isaiah went to who were then conquered by the Assyrians and now again Jonah's after that event that God sent Isaiah to them so that they would be, be further turned over to the things that they really wanted. They were turned over fully to the idols they were pursuing. And this is something we get so backwards because we think that, that our prosperity, our comfort, the ease that we live life with now is, is a sign of God's blessing on us when, when that could be a sign of God's judgment because he turns us over to pursue the things we want most desperately knowing that they are not him and it's to our own destruction. So how do you pray about God? How do you pray about yourself? Jesus talks about this too in Luke chapter 18. He told a parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. I mean, I love that Luke tells us straight up here, here's who this is for. This is, this is, a, this is a parable told for people like Jonah. They, were, they, they trusted themselves as righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. 
I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, wouldn't even lift his eyes to heaven. But he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you this, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. We don't often enough realize that the greatest danger for our souls is in our own self-righteousness. Jonah's prayer reveals that. Again, why does he go after people who pay regard to idols here? Why is that even part of his prayer? Because it's so a part of his heart and identity, and he's still holding that against God. You know, God, you called me to go to this place. I didn't want to go. I went the other way. And why did I go the other way? Because I, I'm not going to go and be with them. They, they, they have forsaken their hope of steadfast love. But, but no, I'm the one that's going to come back and do it right. And so it shows our hearts and our beliefs about others as well. Again, Jonah versus the sailors. The sailors have a higher view of human life than Jonah does. Jonah said, throw me over. And he was waiting for Nineveh to be, and we get to chapter four, and he's waiting for Nineveh to be destroyed. God says, go to these people. Jonah says, nah, I'm gonna do what I wanna do. But what did the sailors do? When Jonah said, throw me overboard and everything will calm down for you, they didn't listen to him. They dug in more with their oars, trying to get to shore. And then when they came to a point where the storm just got worse and worse, they were desperate. And even then, they prayed, Lord, using God's covenant name, Yahweh, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. See, they plead with God not to hold Jonah's death against them, but Jonah would rather die than see God's grace extended to anyone else. God is concerned with all people. Jonah ends his prayer with a weird shot against pagans. See, understanding God's character, our hearts should be and will be, if we're, if we're coming humbly before him, our hearts should be transformed to mirror God's heart. And so what does it look like to have God's heart for all people? It means you have to actively love those who are unlike yourself. It's again the great commandment. It sums up the law and the prophets. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. In the Gospel of Luke, the question immediately came up that I think we often ask. Well, Jesus, who is my neighbor? And he wanted to tell the parable of the Good Samaritan. We're still asking, who is my neighbor? Do I really have to love those people? Do I really have to, have to care about those people? Because I don't know if I do. Like, compassion is love that really sees someone. What it means to love others and to, as God loves is it means you have to give some things up. To love people and really see someone and to have real compassion and care, you have to give up time. 
It's not fast. It's not easy. You have to give up your own preconceived understandings of things, the way that you've read, the way that you've lived, the way that you've, the, the worldview you've seen, and be willing to sit with someone to learn about their, their own perspectives. It takes giving up defensiveness, and being able to sit humbly and listen. But it's not just giving things up. You also have to embrace things. You have to embrace vulnerability, actually being open and honesty and seeking understanding. And the way that you pray for other people will be reflected in your life. It'll be shown in the way that you live, in the way that you treat people, in the way that you especially treat people who are not like you. And so Jonah's prayer reveals a lot about him, about what he thinks about God's character and what he thinks about himself and what he thinks about others. And in the same way, our prayers do. They, they reveal what we believe about God and reveal what we believe about ourselves and about others. But I don't just want to stop there because right now it's a, I mean, it's, it's a pretty tough word to hear because there's a miracle here as well. While Jonah doesn't have a good perspective on God's character, he has a terrible perspective on other people. He's got a very prideful, kind of delusional perspective on himself. It's amazing that God still hears his prayer. That's a miracle in itself. And we often pray for miracles. Sometimes God does miraculous things, but, but, but as we pray for miracles, I don't think we often enough realize and reflect on the reality that prayer itself is miraculous that we can do this anywhere, anytime, that we can, we can talk to God directly, that at any time, in any place, in any circumstance, we can cry out to the creator of the universe, the, the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land, and God will hear you. And he cares about all people, and so that means he cares about you. For some of you, that's one of the hardest things. It's not, you're not jaded against other people the way Jonah is, but some of you are really jaded against yourself. God hears you. He hears your prayers. And yes, you reveal your own heart through them. And so we see this, like the sailors showed contrition and humility and relied on God's mercy. And Jonah showed arrogance and delusion in God's judgment the same way that the tax collector fell down as Jesus told the parable. And all he had to say, he didn't have anything else in him but to say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. While the Pharisee stood up and said, I'm so glad that I'm not like that guy and that I do what I'm supposed to do. I fast, I give tithes, I do the, the right things. But God especially listened to the prayer of the tax collector. He listened to the prayers of the sailors. Misunderstanding God's character will lead to misunderstanding our own lives. And so in, in light of all of this, we've been talking about how not to pray for a lot of this, because Jonah gives us a great example. So how are we supposed to pray? How can we avoid what Jonah does here and avoid misunderstanding God's character and turning into a self-focus? In, in the Hebrew text, by the way, the, some of the word endings are the second person, you, and so that's not an actual word, but I can't remember the count. It's something like 23 to 4 that Jonah references himself versus referencing God. Like, this is a self-focused prayer. How do we avoid that? How do we avoid delusions on our circumstances around us? How do we pray differently than Jonah in our text today? This is a model of what not to do. But Jesus gave us a model. 
when he said, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Do you hear what's in this prayer? Our Father in heaven is saying through Christ we can be adopted as a child of the Almighty God and we get, gain access to God as our Father. I heard Tim Keller say one time, the only person who can wake up a king at 3 a.m. to ask him for a glass of water is a child. And we have that kind of access to God. We say, hallowed be your name, declaring God's character and holiness in praise. We say, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we are seeking God's kingdom above all else before we even get to ourselves, that praying for opportunities to be a part of his work. And here we ought to be praying, may it be in D.C. as it is in heaven. And then we turn to our needs, saying, give us this day our daily bread. It is right to turn to God and ask for provision and realize that like the Israelites in the wilderness reliant on manna, that every day we are reliant every morning on new mercies. But God can provide. So let's, we can turn and ask him to. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors, that the overflow of understanding our own forgiveness is to, is to extend forgiveness to others. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Addresses our hearts and our real need, that it's a spiritual need. And so church, I'm going to ask that you join me in praying this, this morning. I'm going to ask that you stand up with me as we close this time, praying the Lord's Prayer together. I have it on the screen because otherwise there's like 15 different ways we would say the words. <laughs> whether it's trespasses or debts and whether you add, thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory. So we're just gonna, we're gonna be in unison today. So please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. You may be